0: It's episode 45 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. Today on the program is Josh Brewer. He's the CEO and co-founder of Abstract, and formerly a principal designer at Twitter. We're going to jump into the seemingly endless debate on how design gets produced, from mock-ups to prototypes to production, and through collaboration, process, and everything in between. Josh, thanks for being on the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Ah, it's good to hear your voice again. How have you
1: been? Been well, very well, busy. Uh, probably busier than ever. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> but, uh, I,
0: yeah, I bet. How long now have you been going at it with Abstract?
1: Uh you know that d- depends on uh, the technical definition <laughs> You're of when. it's you know, such yeah. a
0: designer. Well, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so, Abstract was spun out of a, a little uh, incubator that I had started called Habitat, um, and so. I could trace kind of the like beginning germinations of the whole thing all the way back to the summer of two thousand fifteen.
0: Yeah, um yeah. but
1: in reality we didn't start in earnest until uh January of twenty sixteen. We uh right. small team and uh you know, everybody showed up at the beginning of the year and basically started from uh nothing and got yeah. to work.
0: Two and a half years is yep. uh an eternity. Or is that three and a half? Two and a half. It's two and a yeah. half, yeah. Um can be an eternity and can be a blink of an eye when you're doing a startup. That's been my experience. Both simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and for a little context, like you've been practicing design for years. You were at SocialCast early on. You were at, uh, what was the, the audio? Oh, I was looking up your, that popped out of my head. The first thing you were doing with… Um, Slacker Radio. Slacker Radio. That's it. That's right. Oh, that's I love Slacker back. Radio. Way back, yeah, that's great. Um, so, but you have always been kind of in the interaction design, um, in the middle between sort of visual design and engineering and stuff like that. A little bit of technical code as well, haven't you?
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: Yeah, and um, and that kind of set the stage for what you were doing with this startup, was, which was. Uh, and you should just give me just a little sort of overview of what uh, what Abstract is doing. Everybody out there as well.
1: Sure. No, I appreciate that. Um, so to, just to quickly confirm it, yeah, uh, kind of sat always in that spot between kind of the visual and the uh, implementation. Uh, interaction design definitely uh, fit as a title for quite a while. Um, mm-hmm. you know, as, as all things with design, we keep finding new ways to call different things the same thing. Uh, Or the same thing, different
0: things. (laughs) Um, exactly.
1: But uh, yeah, it definitely informed a lot of kind of how I've practiced my craft over the years and definitely had a huge impact on how we started Abstract. And so for everyone out there, Abstract is uh, version control and file management uh, for modern design teams. We uh, took uh, big cues from our engineering counterparts in their workflow through a technology called Git, which enables kind of distributed... Uh, work to happen concurrently um you know on the engineering side it's multiple engineers writing uh code on the exact same code base at the same time uh, with a really great way for managing that workflow um, approving each other's work and merging it all together and a lot of designers have kind of looked at that for a long time and wished and hoped uh, that there was a way that we could uh, participate in a similar type of uh, workflow and uh uh, if I'm totally honest, I, after Twitter, we definitely you know had a couple of uh, attempts at trying to do something like that. And right. I had kind of given up hope, to be totally honest with you, uh, that it was ever going <laughs> to, you know, kind of the, I guess we just don't get to have nice things moment.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah.
1: My, my co-founder, Kevin, uh, you know, being the amazing engineer that he is, kind of one day, you know, kind of kept pulling on a thread and was like, well, wait, what if it is possible? And, you know, me right Uh, being me was like well somebody else would have figured it out by now man Uh, but thankfully (laughs) Kevin was not dissuaded by that and uh, managed to find a way to start uh, making that a reality and so we've been uh, you know building it for the last almost two and a half years we've got a ton of phenomenal teams all around the world using it and uh, we couldn't be more excited about what's ahead because we feel like we're finally just getting started, yep. <laughs> which is yeah. a yep. strange spot to be in. But uh, really, just the beginning of uh, what we think is possible uh, with what we've built.
0: Yep, that's um, that's impressive. Uh, we should kind of break it down, I sure. think, a little bit. This whole problem, because I've been experiencing this problem uh, since I don't know, sh- shortly after the Second World War, it's just like ever. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so maybe we start a little bit on the, on the engineering side. This has been the idea that there's a whole code base and it is made up of, uh, multiple people contributing to the essentially all the same files that are sitting on a disk somewhere. Right. And what you don't want to do is have one person save somebody else's work on top of somebody else's. I mean, I, at the very core of like all of this fancy Git and everything, the idea is like, don't overwrite my work. Right. We both have to work on essentially the same text file uh and there's got to be a way to avoid that. Does that sound fair absolutely so what one of the reasons I think that this has been this is a mature uh field in Uh, Code and engineering is that it is literally only text files and text files are simple and therefore I think a bit easier to manage than what designers have typically used, which are everything from, you know, giant Photoshop files to uh, sketch files to all of these things which have historically been just big messy piles of binary data.
1: Exactly. No, I mean you're you're exactly on point.
0: It is also, I believe, a lot easier to, frankly, visualize the difference between two text files that I think even people who haven't gotten into too much technical stuff have seen things like you know track changes in Microsoft Word, where here is the uh, current stuff, here is the change, and here is the old stuff, and like the old stuff is red and the current st- and the new stuff is green. Right there, you right. go. That's how a text document changes um but showing the visual delta between like i worked on this and now it is this thing and here are the steps in between it's it's a really challenging problem as well that is an understatement (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: no i mean it's exactly right and one of the big challenges is that um for you know since we've had these drawing tools they've as you said been this giant you know pile of binary code uh, which is really really not friendly um, to kind of almost any version control system out there in its kind of like default natural state, if you will. Yeah, and so, yeah. you know, people have tried to put um, Photoshop files and then sketch files and all kinds of stuff into Git or into Subversion or Mercurial. These are just different, you know, uh, flavors right. of version control systems. And unfortunately, the binary data is not only really large, uh, but it also tends to compound over time, right? Because What you want to do in any good version control system is just save the delta of changes. But what ends up happening is you're literally just saving the same file over and over again. So from a disk storage uh, space, it just grows exponentially. uh, Right, right, right. Without being able to do something uh, which breaks it down and can actually store the changes.
0: And that is also significant in just the technology that the the varying disciplines use. Because writing a bunch of code, like... A text file that that consists of a lot of code might just be four or five kilobytes, right? Exactly. But a very simple user interface could be many megabytes. Just the thing that's sitting on the desk.
1: Yep. Now it's I mean, it's one of the the things that we actually grapple with quite a bit is um, you know being as intelligent and smart as possible in how we store that data, uh, what we know about what has actually changed, and finding the most efficient ways to uh, kind of like Put that data into that uh, Git storage system.
0: There are at least a couple of different, entirely different directions you could go to try to solve this problem. And it seems to me one of the ways you've been thinking about it has been all right. Like we have all these robust tools for managing Delta and workflow and process and all that stuff. You've chosen the open source Git, which uh, you know GitHub is based on, and a number of others, uh, which is you know I think incredibly robust in how all of this stuff happens. There's another direction, which is very much like instead of doing deltas, why don't we just all edit the file at the same time? Right? right. And that is like the the analogy there is like if a text file in a content management system is one path, then Google Docs is the other path. There are just there's a whole bunch of cursors, right? Remember sub ether, sub ether edit from our, totally. you know when we were much, much younger. Right. This idea that like you open up a document and there's just a whole bunch of people typing. And um, and all of the changes are happening at all the time, and tell you what you guys just work it out yourself, right? like talk to each other and figure out while you're doing all of that, and that's a whole other path, and so that would be sort of the difference between what you're doing and say what I think figma is trying to accomplish with their um, their visual design uh, and kind of kind of an online multi-user sketch, yeah kind sure. of
1: sure yeah, no that's a that's fair um, yeah I, I, so two two quick things I think that are worth kind of mentioning in that context one. Um, this notion of kind of like a GitHub oriented approach to collaboration versus a Google Docs oriented approach um, is definitely something that, um, you know, we talk about, we hear, um, and it's very fascinating to kind of study the makeup of the teams and the people that gravitate to one or the other. Um, I I uh-huh. genuinely, you know, I don't know that uh, it's a winner take all type of situation. And in reality, I think it's more like context dependent than anything else. But... What, uh, you know, what I think is common between both of them is that you actually still have to talk to each other, right. In either situation, <laughs> yep. right? Like none of this technology removes the need for us to talk to each other. Um, it cuts down on the amount of back and forth in a lot of ways. And, um, at least in the approach that, you know, kind of we've been taking in that, the kind of Git oriented approach, um, it allows for the asynchronous work and asynchronous feedback to happen in a way that's just different from that, like everybody in the same thing at the same time. It's also a a lot easier to actually understand who changed what in in the kind of like more asynchronous Git oriented way. And so that's something that just as a designer myself and as someone who, you know, did write front end code for a long while. um, And one of Kevin and I's core goals was how do we bring design and engineering closer together? How do we allow them to work in a parallel kind of workflow and share common language, so that that communication can actually be more efficient.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you know it's interesting. I I don't think I have a strong position either way. I think they're they're different, like you said, context depend, dependent. Probably yep. very dependent on the teams and stuff like that. But I I do know that there are there are periods of time when in, in any discipline, but in design in particular, you just kind of want to go away and work on your thing. Right, and the the idea that then all of a sudden a cursor pops up and starts moving stuff around, and, and I'm sure there are many like I haven't gotten in deeply into the, the controls around that in Figma or Google Docs for that matter, but I know there's there's plenty of times when you can say okay, it's all mine right now, yeah, and I'm just gonna you know, and and then everybody can come back and um, but uh, but it but the asynchronous notion of like I'll work on it, then you and like the hot potato, it's yours now, take it, right? Is um, is something that I have been familiar with just because of my my history working with development teams from the design perspective. Right. You know? like, and so you are kind of in this big like, well, design is over here and engineering is over here. You're a little bit saying like, we're going to just bring design over into the engineering tool space a little bit, it feels like, kind of meeting them over there. Well, I think what we've been trying to do is actually kind of like
1: less move into their space and more help there be a bridge you know, between yeah, the yeah, two. Yeah, fair
0: enough fair enough um though from a platform that is well established and frankly trusted Definitely. yep in yep. the development community and and i think that gives you i think i think that would ostensibly give you an advantage like oh it's just git okay sure we know how that works you know what i mean right interesting interesting well i have bunch of questions about the social side of things and we'll talk about that in just a minute and all the communication uh but i want to uh thanks a sponsor here um we have had them on a couple of times uh and it is it is a very appropriate that we talk about them because of the (laughs) the um this this experience, Josh, you and I probably have both had in the past of trying to email around uh, Photoshop documents. That's where I think <laughs> maybe all of the collaboration in the world started, which is I have a 75-megabyte Photoshop and, uh, file, and I'm going to try to get that through the Exchange server over to you. <laughs> so uh, the support for the show this week comes from WeTransfer. Uh, 40 million people use WeTransfer to send and receive files every month. No sign-in is even required. You just upload... You send an email and get back to making whatever it is you make. Uh, and they support that with ads that happen when you come and uh, upload and download the files. So since day one, we transfer has devoted 30% of that ad space to showcasing creative people from around the world, from musicians to photographers and illustrators and even podcasters like us. Uh, so in that spirit, they have asked me to just skip the rest of the ad and get right back to work, uh, just like you should when you're, using it, when you're trying to share files. So wetransfer.com, thanks to them uh, for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. You make, we transfer. All right. So here's uh, what a lot of this debate reminds me of. Uh, a long time ago, I started a company called Adaptive Path, uh, and we did in that era a lot of our consulting work. Was around helping companies that had giant, like tens of thousands of pages websites, take all of that content and for the very first time, like get it into a content management system, and so that stuff could be dynamic. You remember those days? I do. Yeah. And so those were the those were the projects. There were like these big commercial CMSs for things you know, like Vignette was one of them, and uh, oh, I can't remember the others, but there were these huge, like enterprise software systems, and you would you would get all of these static web pages and like get them like down to their basic metadata, big information, architect, uh, information architecture, and merged in there. Uh, and everybody thought that would solve all their problems. And all it did was expose all of the sort of underlying political issues around who does what when. Exactly. <laughs> and so we realized very quickly, oh, this is – all right, there is an interesting sort of like metadata analysis and information architecture thing that we can do, and we can do that in a user research-based way, and that'll be, um, that'd be better. Than what's happening now, but ultimately, for any of these projects to ever be successful, it is about people talking to each other, yeah. you know, like getting people together, figuring out a process, figuring out a way to work, and then we'll take whatever that social activity is that's happening and model it in the in the software. As opposed to the software is going to come and fix all the problems, right? And uh, and the like history of the consulting work that I did was literally that over and over again, which was just get like introducing people to one another. <laughs> that was it. So uh, I, I'm, I imagine you have some sort of thoughts around that as well.
1: It definitely is, you know, one of the most interesting things in my career, you know, over and over and over watching different teams tackled different things in, in different ways. Yeah. And at the end of the day, as you just mentioned, it really always comes down to th- that group of people who is responsible for making uh, to come together and actually figure out how, how are we going to communicate with one another? How are we making decisions? Who is responsible for what? Um, and what are the ways that we can uh, agree on what success looks like? And, and so, uh, honestly, you could pick whatever content management system you want. You can pick whatever drawing tool you want. Uh, you can pick whatever language you want to code the thing up in. It does honestly, I'd like I, it matters less and less, uh, I think, especially the larger your teams get. Um, and what really ends up mattering is, is that communication and that fidelity um,
0: of agreement that's right because i think one of the core issues here with the the way in which we produce design is that the thing that a designer draws can never have a perfect representation in the code that the developer produces that that that's unfair to you that's That's, been my experience
1: that's pretty fair and if 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 uh if somebody knows how to make that possible um they should please
0: contact me (laughs) <laughs> right, right, right. As the soon only as way the only way that that has ever come close to working is with tools that attempt to be WYSIWYG. Yeah, what you see is what you get. Yeah. So you get tools like Dreamweaver, which give you the appearance in Dreamweaver of what shows up in the browser you can look at both of them and go yeah yeah that's pretty cool yep. but then you look at the code and it's like oh my god right like it's just a impenetrable and unsustainable nightmare right right so like as soon as something goes wrong and you look in the in the in the web browser and like oh there's a new browser just came out and all of a sudden my website is a mess what happened uh or or even m- maybe more likely like the footer is off by 10 pixels how did right. that happen literally no idea You'll never figure it out because there is just this huge spaghetti jumble of code underneath. So the so the path that we had decades ago in in tools like PageMaker and Quark Express, where you literally draw something on the screen and then it's output in an exact representation to the to the pixel or the uh, uh or the the dot from the printer, right? Like right. That worked, but that has never worked with desi- uh, designers creating interfaces for web or mobile or anything like that. Right. So. Well- So we have this like this approximation, like this is what I want, and they hand it off to somebody who then codes it off and codes it up and says, "How about this?" and and there's the conversation. It's close, but maybe look more like this. And that has been exacerbated by the the fact that interfaces open and move and evolve, and even are starting to have more of a physics model around them, especially especially in mobile apps where uh where where stuff behaves, like I flick a thing, and the timing and the bounce against the the other side of the screen and all of that is super, super important to the millisecond and almost impossible to represent in the design tools that we have now
1: yeah and and even if you are you know representing it in the design tool, uh, you may have an engineer implementing that exact thing on the web, another one implementing it on iOS, yes. another one on Android. Uh, and and you realize that each of those have their own very unique ways that they represent those timing functions, and and so it's it's not like you can just do it even once and have it work across the board. There's always like nuance, in, uh whether it's in the code itself or in the way that the platform um, handles those things, and so yeah. you know, it like you said, it just gets exacerbated with the the kind of like myriad of platforms we have to design for now and take into account. Right. Um, but I, I do think one of the interesting things is. If you, if you remember back to when kind of responsive web design really first started becoming a thing. I think yeah. one of the most challenging uh, aspects of it for most people that I was talking to and just kind of like observing was having to get really comfortable with ambiguity and, right. and understanding that actually my stuff is never going to be perfect. It's never going to be exactly to the pixel how I designed it on this perfect static you know, Photoshop document. Mm, it, it, yep. it, it's going to respond, it's going to move and flex and grow. And it really, um, I mean, I, I just personally, you know, I, I actually kind of enjoyed embracing that because it, it took a little bit of the pressure off of like, everything must be perfect. And it put it more into what is the best, most appropriate um, kind of like rendering of the intent here, depending on platform and device and screen size and all those things. Um, and so it forced us to kind of like become adaptive in the way that we think about designing interfaces. And I, I I personally think that was a really important evolution, but I still think we struggle and we haven't kind of made that next leap past that yet.
0: There is a, I mean, it, 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 borders on the stereotypical, but, but there is a certain, uh, quality of most designers around the attention to detail. And, and so that like giving up of, the precision that is so inherent in so much design, right? The pixel level detail, that kind of stuff. Um, and it's not even giving that up. It is an acceptance that uh, it is appropriate in some places, but in other places, it's not achievable. Yep. Uh, I think that's very, very difficult. Um, and and that attention to detail, I think, is, is inherent in any technical craft. Like, it's the same quality that I look for in very talented engineers, this idea, right, of of being aware of edge cases and uh, understanding the implications of the architectural decisions that they make in their code. Absolutely. Um, All of that kind of stuff. And at the same time, we are almost like uh, we are coming at it from this Buddhist perspective of like, you know, perfection leads to suffering. My friends, (laughs) (laughs) it's true. It's true. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's a, uh, that's a difficult one. Um, and, And, and what I have found, right. Is that, the, the more that I work, the more that I look for designers with deeper and deeper technical knowledge to pair with developers with more and more of a sensitivity and appreciation and even an aptitude for design, you get this meeting in the middle of the, that messy middle part that some magic starts to happen. Right. But when, when I have designers that are not bothered with the technical details and engineers that think, like, just give me the picture and I'll make it, like, that's when none of the stuff happens. None of the stuff really works.
1: Yeah. I mean, it definitely, well, whether it works or not, it's more difficult, you know, for sure, like, full stop. Um, I think part of it is that acknowledgement. If you have been even exposed to, you know, how the engineers who are implementing the design are architecting it. Um, What frameworks they're using, you know, whether or not on the back end they're using, you know, I don't know, it's either, you know, react these days, or maybe they're still, you know, using Ruby somewhere, uh, you know, on the server, or God only knows, it could be all kinds of different uh, backends, but just even having a tiny appreciation for what technology they're using, and how those things actually get put together, uh, can inform some of, you know, what you're doing as a designer, or if nothing else, give you Um, Again, just more pathways for communication. Uh, The engineer being able to talk about the APIs that they have to create in order to uh, satisfy the requirements of the design you've put in front of them uh, would be great to know earlier on, right? But a lot of designers maybe don't think about APIs, don't think about talking to their developer counterpart before they ever push a pixel about what APIs are available versus which ones we have to create from scratch. Um, right,
0: right. Well, now to be fair, the, the tool chain in front e- in the front end development these days is absurd, but <laughs> it has gone like framework upon framework upon framework. And I, you know, I see these like, uh, uh, you know, bundling things together of megabytes of JavaScript just to get. A paragraph on the page. I think we have in in an attempt for control, which I, that, that sort of the backend developers have, have had for a long time, right? Like some kind of unified system that I, that, that is rational and responds the way I expect it to, but we, it has led to this just like overwhelming number of frameworks that it's really hard to keep up these days. Yeah. I mean, I
1: look back and I think one of the advantages I had early on in my career was, that almost always, not necessarily every single time, but I'd say the vast majority, I would end up coding up the front end of whatever I designed, uh, which really kind of actually was an advantage for me. And I can't even fathom like starting from scratch today and trying to get into uh, you know, just basic front-end uh, development. It, the, the overhead is, is substantial. And yeah. in some cases, I get it, especially when you're working on very large, complex systems. But to your point, like having to run <clears throat> preprocessors and you know spin up an entire local web server and everything in order to be able to just render you know a paragraph of text, right. um, definitely feels like we've we've I don't know what the right term is for it, but we've we've almost like gone the complete revolution to where you're on the opposite side of things. Um, we've we've made it more complex in an effort of making it easier.
0: That's right. Yeah. And I'm sure the pendulum will swing back. And, and there might be some of that, you know, sort of like when the meteor hit and all the reptiles went away and, and the mammals survived, like that, you know, that stuff happens from time to time, you know? Um, and we may, we may get something like that. There's, there's all sorts of like, you know, web assembly and, and things like that that are on the horizon. Yeah. Who knows, you know? And who knows? Like again, it, it, these are, these are experiments and, and, and attempts at other frameworks and things like that, but we'll see. Do you have some success stories around? maybe streamlining some of that communication that happens and, uh, between kind of design with the perfect image and developers trying to get closer to it and things like that.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, in, in reflecting back over and over, I think one thing stands out to me is that uh, developers uh, that I was working with and kind of call my counterparts in the process of, of, you know, bringing something to life, the earlier I involved them, the more successful the project was every Uh, time getting, getting them on the page at the very beginning to, you know, even at the point of like problem statement, right? What problem are we actually addressing for our customer? You know, if we can all, if we can all agree on what that is, then by the very nature of how we're going to go about, you know, solving it, we're starting from at least the same place. Um, and I've had developers I've worked with who had fantastic ideas and came up with great Mm -hmm. interaction, uh, proposals, you know, and things that we could do, or they observed some little nuance that because I'd been staring at it for weeks and weeks and weeks, yeah, just, you know, had become, uh, slowly blind to and, and involving them earlier in the process, um, allowed them to understand what I was doing and how I was attempting to solve the problem, the kind of various iterations, we, uh, we definitely saw some success uh, in this area at Twitter. We, as I mentioned earlier, we, we tried to solve the version control problem a few different ways. Um, but one of the kind of byproducts of one of those experiments was an internal uh, tool that we called the design stream. And it was really, I just hacked a WordPress blog uh, uh, to be able to access uh, our subversion repo. So designers could just drag and drop screenshots onto this little app we built and it would automatically populate a post. You know, they could put a title and a description of what they had done in the work. Um, and if this sounds a lot like a commit message, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and But what happened was once they published it, it was published internally to everyone in the company. Anyone at Twitter internally could go and see this work. And so what started happening was earlier and earlier in the process, more people were able to observe and Have kind of like be introduced to the design process, how we go about solving these problems, decisions that we were making. And oftentimes people would have giant questions of like, why in the world did you go this direction? Yeah, I I would like it if it was blah. And then you can point them back to previous Mm -hmm. explorations and and allowing them to kind of come on the journey with you uh, not only teaches like in a really great, uh, like low friction kind of way but it also helps demystify the entire design process. Um, you know, this notion that designers go into a room and God only knows what kind of like uh, Kabbalistic, you know, chance they are spewing, you know, in order to concoct these things. And you kind of break that that whole thing apart and go, no, no, no they're just human beings sitting down, trying to solve a problem in the domain that they, you know, have expertise in. And so that that's been like, over and over and over, the, the most successful thing that I've personally seen.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things, I think I've talked about this in shows past, uh, but I, I, I found a lot of success. It's difficult to get the, the, the circumstances right, but I found a lot of success in considering the design sketch and the first sort of prototype of code to be documentation of decisions that we have made together. Which means getting people into the same room to solve the problems. And I mean, like drawing out interfaces on whiteboards yep. with the stakeholders of that, that feature or, or product or whatever, all contributing. So that means that there is a product manager and a designer and an engineer uh, or a couple of each or whatever the mix happens to be. But saying like, all right, what is the problem we are trying to solve? Where did we observe that problem in the user research that we were all exposed to? And how do we like, what is, what are, what are the best solutions for this? Let's start drawing. Let's start working it out together and getting to like, Oh my God, we've got five things on the whiteboard that all could potentially work. Let's do those three right now. Okay. I'll start doing mock-ups says the designer. Uh, I'll start figuring out what the resources we need says the program manager. And, uh, and the engineers were like, okay, great, we'll start developing architecture and an API to support that. Off you go, and you all know what you're already working on, where the decisions had come from. Now, like I said, that can be uh, time-consuming and difficult to uh, to do, but but that brings a communication to the beginning right. rather than to the end when, like, you didn't make my thing right. You know? Exactly. And I think uh, one thing worth pointing out there is
1: <clears throat> what you just articulated, I think, is arguably maybe one of the most kind of s- sophisticated approaches to to building digital products. And you mentioned uh, user research, right? I think huh. the phrase you I said was... I slid that right in there, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. It was nicely done. Because uh, what you said was the user research that we've all been exposed to, um, yeah, which yeah. which presumes that research hmm. is being done, which right. I-, I love that you slid that in there because I actually think it's one <laughs> of the kind of like understated... Uh, superpowers of any company that's building, uh, especially if you're building digital products, but actually it applies across the board. Uh, that notion of research up front, uh, problem identification, uh, observing it in the wild is yep. is kind of one of the fastest ways I've seen both designer, actually everybody that's a stakeholder in that that kind of scenario you, you, you laid out there, um, being able to actually look at each other and be like, oh, this is a problem. Like yep. this, this is actually this is a problem and we can all observe it together and there's probably not anybody in the room who's like oh well that's not a problem right like right. Th- the research tends to really put that in front of everyone um and I, and i love that point that you made about like drawing together and that's something i've definitely advocated for as long as i can remember because personally that collaborative sketching that notion that nothing's sacred and that we're actually exploring together is one of the more um I, I I don't know if the word bonding is the right exact choice, but yeah, for sure. it, it really does. It it allows um a little bit of like you're letting your guard down, you're opening up to somebody else and allowing them to participate with you. And so out of that, there's you're building a little bit of trust in those moments. And and building that trust early on and having that shared understanding of what we're trying to do that's going to help way down the road when something goes wrong. Cause eventually like it will, it, you know, it's almost inevitable that at some point something's going to be wrong. Something's off. Some miscommunication happened or just communication mm-hmm. didn't happen at all. And yeah. so setting that stage as early as you can to your point, I think is critical in, in allowing that uh, team to be successful.
0: Doing that kind of stuff uh, together, I think is an act of vulnerability. Um, and that is one of the very foundations that you build a culture on, frankly, is the trust and candor that comes from being vulnerable with each other and, and feeling safe enough to be able to do that. And when you can create that in a room together with a bunch of people that are working towards the same thing, that, that to me is the fertile ground of both culture and creativity.
1: I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more.
0: So man, that, yeah, that's a, that's a lot of stuff for people to, to try to figure out. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, um, let's see what, uh, what else has, uh, what, what other things roadblocks have you kind of come, come across as you've been working through some of these, uh, you know, features that you're trying to develop for the app? Yeah, that's a
1: great question. Some of, some of it comes down to, um, well, and, and I'm sure you're super familiar with this. Uh, there's, there's kind of just prioritization, right? Like mm-hmm. which of these things are actually the most important um which of them if we build them allows allow us to build other things right so i'm i'm constantly on the lookout for you know doubles and triples wherever i can get them right so <laughs> yeah. we build one feature but actually by building that feature it enables us to like either increase the capabilities of some other stuff that already exists or it becomes the like foundation and you know call it first or second layer of another feature entirely and so those are definitely uh, challenges, and those require you know, communication between myself and design and engineering, um, oh, yeah. also talking yeah. with with support, right? So getting feedback coming through from our support team and, and feeding that into kind of that decision-making
0: matrix. Yeah, yeah. I think almost all product development is prioritization, frankly. I think that's right there at, at the very core. And in bigger organizations, you have a little buffer around that. Yep. But man, it's life and death in a startup those decisions are everything. It's, it's everything. So yeah, I am, uh, I totally agree. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of cascading from there, I think
1: it it can come down to sometimes, uh, you know, technical, uh, specking of a feature. Uh, sometimes you're able to get really, really good and, uh, you're accurate in your estimation and sometimes you think it's going to be a month. And so you say, okay, it's probably six weeks. And then it turns out it's actually more like 12 weeks. Um, because there was something somewhere that no one could have foreseen. Um, Or maybe they could have, but they weren't in the room at the time. Who knows? Um, But so some of those things uh, tend to be interesting moments. Uh, Something that we've observed is they're definitely, if you're not careful and if you're not planning for it, that cycle between design, build, refine, and then kind of that iterate process. Um, Sometimes the design can either not be quite done before the engineering's, you know, off and running, which can, in some ways, you're like, oh, cool. We're, you know, we're almost like prototyping with real stuff. And then on the other hand, you, you kind of want to make sure that you're, you're doing the design work and, and trying to be as far ahead as you can. Um, and again, to your point about re- user research earlier, um, I think that's one of those factors. It almost yeah. has a perception of going slower, but in reality, it's so that you're, you're saving yourself time in the long run by building the right thing the right way, yeah. right, with everyone kind of in agreement and bought into it versus like a little bit of blind leading the blind, you know, and we're all kind of feeling our way through it. And I'm sure you, you've been there before. i definitely been there. Um, and so doing the upfront work is definitely one of those things that is almost, almost feels counterintuitive, especially in a startup environment. But I keep finding over and over that the more that we kind of look ahead And operate from a like, okay, well, we don't have this problem yet, but we know, and maybe this comes from experience and having a team of experienced people, but being able to spot like, oh, this is going to be a problem in, you know, N steps from now. So let's
0: do something about it here instead of once we're, you know, smack up against it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Yeah. That's great stuff. Let me, I want to ask you one last question, uh, totally sort of in a different direction. Okay. And that is around just what is the, what is the, the market like for design tools these days? Um, because I f- I keep hearing sort of mixed. And and I found this with even with Typekit as well, is that there's tremendous engineering budgets, but very little is ever, it seems like it's spent on design tools themselves. What is, what's your experience out there in the world right now?
1: Uh, that's a fantastic question. Uh, so I would say historically, design and design tooling is like probably one of the smallest budget items that you could think of on a, on a company's, you know, uh, budget. So I think some of that was that for a very, very long time, you basically needed Photoshop, right? And so either you shelled out the, you know, thousand dollars for the box that, you know, showed up in the mail or you, you know, once it finally transitioned to being able to download it, you could just download it directly, but you were paying for like a tool. And for a long time, a lot of folks that were doing any sort of prototyping probably used PowerPoint or Keynote or maybe just Uh good old HTML and CSS and a little bit of JavaScript, you know, sprinkled in. And then we kind of fast forward and suddenly we're designing mobile interfaces and we're having to come up with new ways of presenting work and being able to show it to stakeholders. And it turns out that sometimes static, you know, mocks aren't even enough and sticking your dummy data in there isn't enough. And so you started seeing design and some of the ancillary tools start like, becoming more important. Um, and a lot of it ends up, I think, being about fidelity. And so suddenly, you know, design's becoming more important. You go back, call it the last, well, really the last 10 years. Um, and I always kind of point back to the advent of the iPhone as like yeah. the, the big kind of like boost into uh, the importance of design and how critical it can be to the success of a business today. And more and more companies, you look in the Fortune 500, and a number of uh, you know, those companies have actual like, C-suite uh, design uh, folks. And yeah. uh, I, one of my favorites is like, Nike's CEO is actually a designer. And so you just see this permeation over the last number of years of design kind of gaining a foothold and, and becoming a critical aspect of your business function. And and I've observed that. I've been a part of it. I've been definitely advocating for it. I know you and I have talked about it several, several mm-hmm. times. <laughs> um, and and it's interesting to watch as a part of your organization matures, the tooling and the um, kind of accountability, the system of record that's necessary, um, all the tools around that start kind of like growing and swarming and and getting built up. And You could point to any part of the company, right? Um, Engineering is the most obvious one, and and we can go on and on with, you know, dev tools and, you know, the myriad of tools that are available to them today. Mm
0: -hmm. You look
1: at marketing and marketing automation and and some of the platforms that exist, sales and Salesforce and all of the tools. And, you know, the fact that there are billion-dollar businesses on top of Salesforce is one of those, like, really interesting moments. And obviously, there's a lot more people doing sales and sales related stuff out there in the world than there are people doing design. But it, it is a very predictable and similar path in every kind of like functional aspect of your business, where as that area becomes more important to the success of your company. You begin to invest in it. You begin to need a system of record. You begin to need uh, tooling that can support the workflows, uh, and because those workflows are actually growing and advancing and becoming more mature, and so we're now in a space where the design uh, tooling community—I mean, there's—I felt like a couple years ago, every single week a new tool was getting released, and it, you know, I think. I was getting a bit of like design tool fatigue. You're just trying to like play with them, see what's different. It turns out there's one feature that's different between X and Y, and you're like, okay, well, if I need that one feature, then now I'm adopting that tool. And you know, when we launched Abstract last year, one of the interesting things that I ran into uh, was what I what I started calling design tool fatigue, Um, or uh, if you want to actually blow it out to the macro, um, internally we called it SaaS tool fatigue. Yeah, whereas Teams that we talk to, were paying for anywhere between, you know, like four to eight or nine different SaaS tools just to kind of do their job. And and, um, on one hand, that's amazing because you can, you know, pick and choose which things you need. You can pay for them when you need them. You can turn them off if you don't. Um, If you discover that your, you know, team and process evolves, you can, you know, carve one out and introduce a new thing if you need to. But it also makes managing all those things harder. And then, if you go deeper, it actually means that um, you have to figure out how to make these things talk to each other.
0: And right? Because you know, ultimately, uh, the 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 dream is automated systems. Yes. Right. Everything working together and humming along. Um, I think, and I think that's entirely achievable. Uh, in cycles, like as you grow, right. things are working, and now they're falling apart, and now they're working, and now they're falling apart, and we see that. Um, I've seen that over and over again. And it's the same with like product management tools. Like, oh my gosh, we are so caught up and everything is in Trello and it's all we can see it all and it's all working. We add five more people to the team, everything breaks, but now like GitHub issues is just going just fine. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, it is this this maturation process and and uh refinement of of how we communicate. Yep. So um I, I see the same thing and going from the prototyping tools and now into like um uh, tools for managing design systems and, and things like that. There's, I think there's a lot of runway on some of that stuff. It's really exciting. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, this is great, Josh. I really appreciate your perspective on all of this. Hopefully we can get to an era where everybody just gets along. That would be wonderful. <laughs> would be design wonderful. Design and developers. Holding hands, walking off into the sunset. That would be great. Uh, we'll see, though. Um, let's see. We can uh, find out more about what you and your team are doing at goabstract.com. That's right. And you are Jay Brewer at Twitter. I'll put some links to all of this in the show notes. Um, and you know what? It's, as always, very much enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And uh hope we get to do it again soon. You bet. That sounds great.